Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, February 14th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with tech editor Sharon Robel and health reporter Renee Gertzand. Hi, good morning to you both. Hi, Jessica. Good morning. Hi there. It is day 131 of the war. An Israeli delegation returned from Cairo after the most recent round of hostage talks, uh, which ended without a breakthrough. As the IDF says, it still has a, quote, long way to go in Gaza, yet somewhat hopeful. And families of hostages uh, arrived at The Hague in the Netherlands today to file war crimes complaint against Hamas. In the meantime, we will look at the downgrade by U.S. ratings agency Moody's, as well as the overland trading route that's being used to avoid maritime trade uh, with the Houthis' attacks by sea, as well as a show of medications in the Hamas tunnels, a measles outbreak, and a Valentine's Day story. All of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. So Sharon, we've had Israeli business leaders, the Bank of Israel chief, calling on the government to rethink its revised 2024 budget, which was passed, of course, after the Moody's rating agency lowered Israel's credit rating on Friday. So back up a little bit. Tell us why they finally lowered Israel's credit rating and then what actually could happen as we look forward. Will the government take these warnings by Israel's business leaders? Will they take them to heart? Will anything actually happen, do we think, as a result of this? Right. So um, Moody's uh, lowered Israel's uh, country credit rating to A2 from A1. Not only did they do that, they also um, put the rating into a negative outlook. What does that mean? It means that they um, open the path to maybe further downgrades, should, for example, the situation in the north escalate. But um, when you really read between the lines, they're they're much more concerned about um, sort of the aftermath of the war. Um, investors really want to see that there's some kind of plan um, and kind of post-war plan or sort of an end to the war. And that's not happening at the moment. And there's much of the criticism that Moody's has put into this report is not so much about the economy, actually. They're actually more, I would say, looking at the past believe that Israel's economy is resilient. It's shown its resilience in the past. In fact, the Moody's 
didn't actually downgrade Israel's credit rating in previous conflicts. They didn't even downgrade Israel during during the pandemic, when the economy was contracting, when deficits were around 10%, and now they're supposed to be closer to 7%. So the question is really, why did they, you know, why did they do it now? And it seems that there's um, they see a lot of political risk. On the one hand, the political risk, they want to see how Israel can restore security. So, for example, if we look at the pandemic, you know, they knew that vaccines would come in and things would sort of, you know, develop and the economy can sort of um, recover. And they're not seeing that now. Um, they're seeing a government that's not acting um, they're seeing a leadership that is sort of rejecting any sort of, you know, what they believe could be a hostage deal or a sort of U.S. brokered, brokered deal. Um, and, and even if there was in theory some kind of plan like in Gaza for after the war, uh, I think Moody's might be less aggressive this time. So, so I think, um, well, as you said, the Bank of Israel stepped in immediately again as the sort of, they say, the Bank of Israel is, is the adult here, um, the responsible adult in telling the government you have to show some responsibility, whether that is on the spending, um, because Israel is going to have uh, almost double its defense spending and other spending. It means they have to free up some funds that are not related to the war effort, that are uh, not related to coalition funds that will actually help um, uh, invest and put funds into areas which are going to bring the economy uh, forward, catalyze the economy, whether that's in welfare, whether that's in health, um, whether that's sort of economic infrastructure programs. And for now, we're, you know, it means that we, we have less in our budget for that. Um, so, um, I think the Bank of Israel was also concerned and they only came out after really coming, you know, seeing the comments from, from the political leadership. Now we saw Netanyahu who said, Oh, this is downgrade is only related to the war. And once we win this war, everything will fall into place and the rating will go up. So that's kind of shifting all this responsibility to the war. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's, that was coming from Netanyahu and from the finance minister. Um, there was an even harsher attack on Moody's. Um, instead of, you know, when you get some criticism, you tactically it would be, it would be, probably sensible to just step back and say, okay, we got this criticism. Let's uh, study look at it, it. Right. Look at it, uh, you know, and, and we'll respond. Um, but instead of that, he sort of attacked Moody's for saying that it was a political manifesto and some kind of misconception of the geopolitical situation. And that's really more an attack than than really saying, oh, we, you know, we, t this is, on, and the Moody's is an authoritative, uh, institution. It, you know, it does have the confidence and, and, uh, investors take the, the rating and, and look at what's happening. Um, so 
from that, I think they only, the political leadership just confirmed in a way what Moody's was sort of saying between the lines, that there is no action and there's a lot of criticism on that side. And and I think that's sort of the main concern. And, and also what Moody's has said is even when the war is over, um, there's a lot of risk that once the war cabinet dissolves, um, there could be early elections, there could be political upheaval uh, coming again. So, um, so there are an, a lot of uncertainties and no real prospects of how these uncertainties are going to be tackled and how they're going to, um, how they're going to pan out. Now you're going to ask what's that to do with the economy? To do with the economy that you need political, do you need institutions and the political leadership, um, for the economy to thrive? Right. Um, Stability. That, that is, Stability. And in fact, this is what, um, Moody's has said. Um, they always give sort of an idea what it, what it would take to stabilize, for example, the outlook from negative. They said the Israeli institutions would, fo- would need to formulate policies that support economic and public finance and a recovery as well as, uh, a restoration of security. So right. that really is, is sort of the, what what they need to do. So Okay. <laughs> Remains to be seen. So we'll see what happens after this. Thanks, Sharon. Okay, so Renee, turning to you, uh, the IDF released a video of a Hamas tunnel where f- containers of medications were found. And of, of course, yesterday we also heard from rescued hostages Luis Har and Fernando Marman that they received no medications, which is just sort of a follow-up. But tell, let's head back to the tunnel and the the discovered medications, what do we know about that? What does it actually tell us? Right. So we're talking about a rather sophisticated, large tunnel uh, in uh, Khan Yunus or under Khan Yunus that the IDF discovered uh, not too long ago, and they released a video of it uh, last week. And I have to uh, thank Miriam Hirschlag, our colleague. She alerted me to the fact that there were sort of zoom-in shots um, in the IDF's video of uh, baskets and boxes of medications, of of, uh, packages of medication. So um, I took a look at the screenshots and I was able to read some of the packages. Um, Some of the, I should note that some of the packages look totally smushed and empty. Others look like they were in good shape, possibly full. Um, And don't forget that this is all taking place against the backdrop of total non-news, no updates on what happened uh, with the agreement from January 16th, brokered by Qatar for medications to come into the Gaza Strip for th- and be delivered to the hostages in exchange for medications and other supplies for Gaza. Um, and there's been absolutely no update on that. So there's no way to tell whether these medications that were seen in the tunnel have anything to do with that agreement uh, or whether they were used, uh, you know, much earlier. We know that this tunnel was used by uh, some of the terrorist leaders and then was converted for, um, you know, keeping 
12 hostages in captivity. Uh, some of the medications that are seen, that are clearly seen in the pictures, are, for instance, one for hypothyroidism, which is a disease that some of that we know that one or more of the hostages has. Um, we you can see insulin syringes, and we know some of the hostages have diabetes. Um, there were swabs to take samples for viruses, sort of like what we use during COVID. And there were some medications only for women. There were creams and vaginal suppositories for yeast infections. Um, some of the medications were labeled only for um, UNRWA usage, which would indicate that those are probably not the medications uh, bought by France for the January, the supposed January deal. Uh, there really is no way of knowing whose medications these are. Yeah, I tried to get comment from the IDF, uh, from the prime minister's office, no comment there. The uh, hostages family forum really had no answer either. They just said the hostages need to be given medicine and even better, they need to be released so that they are saved. Right. Which maybe hopefully one day we'll find out the answer to. Okay. Thanks, Renee. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, we'll talk to Sharon about uh, goods being brought overland. You're listening to this podcast. So I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so Sharon, of course there have been these attacks on the Red Sea by the Yemeni Houthis, and uh, in order to avoid that those kinds of attacks and also the stoppage of goods flowing into Israel, now those goods are being brought overland via Saudi Arabia and Jordan. And I think you wrote that it's it's a very this is done being done very quietly because obviously it's not what would be expected. And overland means roads and drivers. So tell us what you found out. As you said, Jessica, um, the um, you know the route that most um, it, it's really uh, the world's shipping companies have been using through the Red Sea um, has has been sort of stopped or some, you know, they had to uh, deroute or divert uh, to a much, much longer route via uh, Africa, which takes like two to four weeks longer than than going through the Red Sea. And that means huge costs. Um, 
because of the, obviously because of the time, but also because of the risk. So all these sh- ships also have to pay insurance. Um, so th- there's a whole package of costs attached to this, which, uh, which is the reason why they're diverting many shipping companies. In fact, the largest shipping companies are diverting their ships. Um, and it's not really worthwhile. It's, uh, it's delaying, um, a lot of these, the arrival of the goods and obviously also takes the prices up. Um, so one way of, uh, bypassing and, and sort of finding a, uh, interim solution, um, is, is sort of, uh, try, in a way, almost trialed. Uh, by some, uh, freight companies, which are, some of them are Israeli based. Um, there's one company called Trucknet, Israeli company and Menfield that are Israeli based, for example, Menfield, but they're headquartered in the UK. Um, and they've been, um, helping, uh, goods that are destined to Israel, for example, um, to, from the Far East, uh, coming from China and India. They um, dock in ports in uh, Dubai or Bahrain, and then they're being unloaded and um, loaded onto trucks, not Israeli trucks, but trucks uh, like Jordanian trucks. They have some kind of agreements with local companies that then bring this cargo via Saudi Arabia um, to sort of Jordan, to the King Hussein crossing. Um, it's the, when, when these goods travel from ports in the Middle East, like in Bahrain and Dubai, they are in some sort of service, which apparently in the shipping industry is called transshipment. It's like a transit as if you were flying to one destination, but you're actually going over an area. You're not really entering. Um, it's just your transit. And so they're not tracked as Israeli goods. They're not destined as, as going to Israel. Um, why is that important? Because, because Israel, although has a peace agreement with Jordan and it's normalized ties with the UAE and Bahrain, there are no ties with Saudi Arabia. So that's, that's a very sensitive and geopolitical issue. And if you would ask the Saudi Arabia if they would agree to, uh, transfer goods by their territories, they would probably not allow it. Um, but in this way, it's, it's some kind of creative solution. Solution. Um, mm-hmm. it's not something that would, uh, replace the, the, uh, the Red Sea route. Um, you know, that there's also a limit on how much you can transport on, on tracks, but it's definitely some kind of testing ground. And this type of route was also, it was something that was um, that was uh, talked and discussed about uh, before the war, when there were sort of U.S. initiated talks about uh, normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia. So there's there's some kind of land, even sort of land train route um, that would go from China and also from India uh, via the Middle East um, that could bring goods via Israel to Europe. Um, so. Um, these companies, actually, the, particularly the Israeli companies, it's, I'm not sure that's very a, a, a profitable route or, um, it's, it's also pretty complicated at this point. But I think there's some kind of belief in sort of 
a peace or some kind of agreement that was in, you know, before the war very much uh, advanced that for, you know, in the after war period, that could be something that could happen. And then, you know, they've already uh, did some kind of pilot on it. So we shall see. And I think these companies are banking on that and they would want that, um, you know, for certain types of goods probably, or depending from where they come from, it it might be a good idea or to to also sort of have another trade route that could be used. Another option, basically. Yes. Right. Okay, interesting. We'll see. See how that pans out. And finally, Renee, it is Valentine's Day. And while it is not very widely celebrated here. There's definitely signs of it. And you wrote about a book about Jewish weddings around the globe, which seems quite fitting. And it's nice to have just a little bit of good news. So tell us tell us what you found out about this book about Jewish weddings. Right. So I, I have a story coming out, I guess, today um, for Valentine's Day. It's on this new book just published about a week ago called A Hundred Jewish Brides, Stories from Around the World. It was edited by Barbara Vinnick and Shulamit Reinhartz. Um, and it is really a fun and fascinating look at Jewish weddings in 83 different countries. Um, and, you know, sort of back and forth in time, some of the stories go back at least a century, some are just from, re- you know, last year. <laughs> um, and, uh, I found it really eye-opening because for those who sort of are used to, uh, you know, weddings only in their particular community, uh, you really learn that there are all different types of customs. You see how the surrounding culture influences Jewish weddings. You see how Jewish weddings have evolved over time, how some brides and their partner have decided to change up things. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, it, in some ways, it's sort of hard to, to uh, unless you are, you, you adhere strictly to Jewish law, in some ways, it's hard to say what is a Jewish, a Jewish wedding. Um, the book is not all, you know, it's divided up by the stages of uh, of marriage. So it starts from meeting to courtship to all the pre-wedding activities, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not all fancy wedding gowns and fancy parties. There are sub- uh, subjects that are tackled, such as um, pre- pre-wedding conversion, there's intermarriage, there's um, inter-ethnic marriage within the Jewish community, which actually uh, is fascinating because people don't realize that different groups within the Jewish world have to negotiate things. They, for, for centuries, certain groups within the Jewish world did not marry each other. Um, and then there's a very painful section um, on arranged and forced marriage. Um, arranged you know, some of us are familiar with that, even from TV shows such as Schissel, Unorthodox, uh, uh, the the New Black. Um, in you know, so that happens in the Orthodox world today, and people are familiar with that. Uh, but f- uh, forced marriage, 
happened even not that long ago within certain Jewish communities, and that was very painful uh, to read about. Uh, so, uh, anyways, a fascinating book and something nice to read for Valentine's Day. Yeah, so happy Valentine's Day to all who are celebrating, however you do it. Uh, and we're going to say, we're going to close out this daily briefing. Thank you, Renee, and thank you, Sharon, for being with me today. It's been good to see your faces. Thank you. Thank you. We will be back tomorrow with another daily briefing. Stay tuned. If you have comments about this episode or any others, always feel free to drop us an email, podcast at timesofisrael.com. And of course, always feel free to recommend us to other listeners and to rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care and have yourselves a good day and a happy Valentine's Day. Thank you.